Hey, how you guys doing? I'm doing good too. Hey, it's uh, I'm I'm really thankful to uh, to be up here to be sharing with you. My name is Tom Nelson. Uh, I am on the involved with the teaching team here at Discovery, and um, I also serve on the campus on the UC Davis campus with the Navigators, and we've been doing that for going into our fifth year now on the campus. Um, I'm really excited for the opportunity uh, to, to share with you guys. We are still in our, our Pilgrims series, right? And we're, we're going through the, the, the Psalms of Ascent. And these are Psalms 120 to 134. And these were the Psalms that, that, that pilgriming, journeying Hebrews would sing as they were ascending the mountains to go to Jerusalem for, for one of three high holidays every single year. And we've been using this series, this pilgrim series, to, to talk broadly about discipleship, right? This big word that we hear about all the time in churches, in Christian community, even though I think a lot of us might have kind of varying definitions of the word, right? We're talking about discipleship, and we're using this, this definition of, of discipleship is, is formation, the way we're formed into a way of Life. And again, we're using these psalms to look at the ways God is forming us into obedience and following him. Now, um, the reality is, uh, you know, we're, we're at our best when we're looking to him, when, when he's our instructor, when he's our teacher. And so we're going to pray to that end before we go any further. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for uh, this time to gather we're thankful for the opportunity to open up your word, to consider you, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And Lord, I pray in fixing our eyes on him that we'd be changed, that there'd be something so compelling and so beautiful about who you are, that our, our hearts are just softened, that whatever uh, expectations or assumptions or presuppositions of what you would do in us today would be laid aside, Lord, and we really would have open, soft hearts to receive whatever it is you have from us, for us in your word. So, Lord, teach us now, we pray in your name. Amen. So, the reality is, and something we've been hitting on over and over in this series, is that we're all being formed by something. Maybe it's the relationships we're in, the context we're in, the experiences we have, our interpretations of those experiences. The reality is that we are all, whether we acknowledge it or know it or not, we are all being discipled by something. We are all being discipled by someone. Now, I, I am a product of the 80s. I was born in the early 80s, and um, one of the things we know about the 80s is that it was uh, a pinnacle of cinema, right? <laughs> it was a pinnacle of cinema. And some of our greatest movies, we all would agree, right, we came out of the 80s. One of those movies came out in 1984, and we're going to kind of use a clip in a minute here to kind of reorient us in this series, and that movie was The Karate Kid, okay? 1984, The Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio plays as Daniel, who uh, the lead up in this clip, he has gone to Mr. Miyagi and he says, hey, I want to learn karate. I want to learn karate. I'll do whatever it takes. And so they enter into this pack, and in this iconic scene, Mr. Miyagi puts this, this, this bandana on Daniel's head and says, all right, I will teach you karate, 
but you cannot ask any questions and you have to do exactly what I say. And Daniel, unknowing of what he's saying yes to, says, I got it, I get it, absolutely. So they enter into this agreement and immediately Mr. Miyagi hands Daniel a sopping wet sponge and a bucket and says, all right, I want you to go wash and wax all these cars. And Daniel's like, wait, are you kidding me? I want to learn karate. And so as it goes, he, he spends all day washing and waxing these cars. Mr. Miyagi has shown him how to do it. He goes on to do other jobs, painting houses, painting fences. And Daniel finally reaches a breaking point where he says, this is foolish, this is stupid. I want to learn karate, not do all these menial tasks. And he goes and he confronts Mr. Miyagi with a lot of expletives, not in the clip. And he basically says, what the heck, man? Why are you having me do all this? And that's the lead up to the clip you're going to see right now. Sand of floor. Sand of floor. Big sucker. Sand of floor. Sand of floor. Now show me wax on, wax off. Aye. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Concentrate. Look in my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Show me paint fence. Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Other side. Look, I always look, I. Show me paint the house. Side, side. Lock wrist. Side, side. Side, side. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me pen to fence. Show me side to side. Show me sand of floor. Right, you guys, okay, yeah, Karate Kid. I think all of us would agree, right, that, that, that most of what we have learned, most of what we know, most of what, what, what we use to navigate in this world, the things that make us uniquely us, are things that we have learned when we were not explicitly aware that we were learning, right? Most of the things we know, most of the things about us happened and we're, we're, we're kind of taken in passively by us, almost below the level of our perception, when we wouldn't have said, I'm learning right now. So it is with Daniel. 
He didn't understand that these experiences that didn't feel like learning were creating in him perceptions, convictions, practices that were going to shape who he was moving forward. Now, the title for our sermon today is Our Lasting Confidence. We're going to be looking at Psalm 125. It's a whopping five verses. And here's the thing. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available for you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible or if you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to stick up your hand. We have Bibles that are available. And if you don't own a Bible, this Bible is a gift to you. We want you to keep it. Don't feel like you have to return it at the end of the service. This is for you. Put your name in it. It is now yours. As those are being passed out, though, I I love this practice uh, of, of reading the psalm together as a community. So would you read with me on the screen Psalm 125? Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Now, if you got uh, some message notes today, feel free to use those. Um, For some people, these are really helpful. Um, I have a problem with these, though, because oftentimes when I preach, I forget to mention the bullet points throughout the sermon. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to tip my hand early and just give them all to you, okay? I want to make sure that you get them. Now, also, one thing about bullet points is uh, when I started going to church, the pastor would always use alliteration for his bullet points, right? It would be uh, the three A's of discipleship or the the four Z's of communion. I don't know. Um, And I thought, I'm never going to do that. I did it. I actually did it. I apologize. Let me give you you the, the three bullet points, right? The first one, the promise. The first one is the promise. The second one, the people who received the promise. I know. (laughs) The final one, the practice of the people who received the promise. (laughs) Self-hatred, just going, pushing it down. All right, those are the three Ps. We're We're gonna get there. The first one, the promise. Let's look at Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now, you might have been here for this series and be thinking, gosh, they're talking about mountains a lot. Talking about hills, talking about where our hope comes from. And that makes sense. Remember, these are the songs that were sung by communities of Hebrews who were going up the mountains to worship at Jerusalem. And so the source material for these songs is what was right there in front of them. The mountains they were on, the landscape and the horizon, the things they were seeing served as the source material for these songs. We can't really appreciate it that well because many of us have never been to Israel. We've never seen the mountains that surround Jerusalem, so I'm going to bring the mountains to us. And it's really unfortunate that Israel is such a north-south-oriented country. It doesn't fit with our, our PowerPoint that well. 
But here's the thing. If you were to go to Israel, you would know the western border is the Mediterranean Sea, and there's this large, broad coastal plain that, as you move east, moves into a mountain range, which, again, after the mountain range, tapers off and descends down into the Jordan River, which roughly serves as kind of the eastern border for the country. Now, when I say mountains, don't think Himalayas. Don't think these, these craggy 20,000-plus peaks with these sheer rock face walls. Think big hills, okay? The elevation of Jerusalem is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And you can see there, there's a little star which doesn't actually show up that well in the PowerPoint. That's where Jerusalem is. It's just to the left at the top of that body of water. That's the Dead Sea. Which if you trace up from the Dead Sea, that little body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee. And pilgrims would come from all over Israel to where that star is in Jerusalem. And from whatever direction they would come from, they would, they would follow the path. A common path was to come down the Jordan River Valley to about Jericho. And from Jericho, they would head west up the mountains to Jerusalem. And so there were these natural funnels where communities of people would start to converge on the city. And it was here that they would sing these songs as they were ascending the mountain. So as we look at Psalm 125... The what of the promise is found in verse 1. I'll read it again. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Right? The people are described as being like Mount Zion. We've probably heard that phrase before. Maybe we've read it before in the Bible, and it just kind of occupied this gray space in our mind. Well, Mount Zion throughout history refers to a couple different places. And here in this psalm, Mount Zion refers to the mount upon which the temple was built. It was seen as being secure, strong, abiding forever. It was the place where the Jews saw God's presence dwelling in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Okay? So the promise is that the people are like Mount Zion. And it says, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Now, that's a great promise. It's secure, it's fixed, it's protected. But the how of the promise is in verse 2, which says this. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now, if you, again, were to go to Jerusalem, you would know it's in a mountain range, large hills. It is protected by this natural topography But the highest point of that range is not Jerusalem. In fact, you have to go over larger mountains, and then you descend slightly to where Jerusalem is, to where Mount Zion is. And the traveling pilgrims knew this. And we know this because we know of mountains like the Mount of Olives, which Jesus descended during his triumphal entry. And so it's almost as if there's a range of mountains in the mountains that surround a slightly lower Jerusalem. And so when it says in verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, these traveling pilgrims would have a very clear picture of what that means. Evermore, everlasting, without end. You guys, it's almost as if the psalmist is going out of his way to show just how secure, how firm those who trust in the Lord actually are. Right? He basically says, hey, you are an unmovable mountain. 
surrounded by more, larger, unmovable mountains. Forever. It is over the top. He is trying to paint a picture of supreme confidence that God protects his people. And that's why we're calling this our lasting confidence. But we're going to come back to this point. I want to say this. Christian, our lasting confidence is built on the strength of his promise, not on the strength of our convictions and obedience. Okay? We'll come back to that. I'll say it one more time. Our lasting confidence is built on the strength of his promise, not on the strength of our convictions and obedience. Now, here's the thing. We can read these first two verses, and we can get caught up in the imagery. We can get caught up in the the, the picture of the mountains and thinking about what it might have been like for a pilgrim to go up there. We can think about these mountains surrounding Jerusalem as a sign of protection, and we can miss the most important phrase in these first two verses. And that phrase answers the question then, well, what is the prerequisite to get in on this promise? How does someone actually get in on this promise? And it's the first phrase in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord. It is those who trust in the Lord who will get in on this promise. It doesn't say those who keep the law perfectly. It doesn't say those who, who do all the right things, Christian. It doesn't say those who come to discovery, those who lead a discovery group, those who memorize the most Bible verses. It simply says the prerequisite for getting in on the promise is it's that those who trust in the Lord. And so the question, again, at the end we're going to come back to is the question for you. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? And when I ask you what are you trusting in, I mean what are you really trusting in? Because there's a lot of things that I could say that I'm trusting in. There's a lot of things that I could broadcast on Facebook or Instagram that I'm trusting in. What we really trust in and what we want others to see us as trusting in often are miles apart. Sometimes it's financial security. Sometimes it's the approval of your parents. Maybe it's the hope that a relationship works out because you find that if it does, you will be eternally happy. Maybe it's something else. But what we do often is the best indicator of where we give our time, our energy, our resources, our emotions is the best indicator of what we actually trust, not what we say we trust. We'll come back to that question, but what is it that you are trusting in? Bullet point number two. We're going to talk about the people then who received the promise now, if you're anything like me, when you're reading the Bible, it's very easy to almost read it with, with very black and white terms, almost have a, a cartoonish vision of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Maybe if you open up, you read the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew people are the main focus. And so it might be tempted to say something like, yeah, well, the Jews, and, and they were the good guys, and then the surrounding nations and, and everyone else, those were the bad guys. Very black and white. You might be reading the New Testament and say, well, the good guys, obviously, it's Jesus, and then all those who were kind of near him, who were associated with him, who were following him, right? Those are the good guys, and then everyone else, they're, they're just the bad guys. And in some ways, that's true. In some ways, that holds up. But again, we want to read the scriptures as a whole and understand what God says as a whole throughout the scriptures 
as to who has God's favor, who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And you realize that even in the Old Testament, the ones who were the recipients of God's most harshest judgment, harshest criticism, harshest rebukes were not the surrounding nations. It was the Jews themselves. In fact, if you read in Hebrews 3, in the beginning of 4, it says that, that the Jews, actually, many of them didn't enter that eternal rest because of disbelief. You read in the New Testament with those who were following Jesus, and even in Matthew 7, he says to those people, hey, you did all these things in my name. You said you were one of, someone who was following me, and yet I never knew you. Depart from me. And so we need to get past a very black and white, polar thinking about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It's incredibly unhelpful. When we read Psalm 125, verse 3, it says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now, when we hear scepter of wickedness, this is um, a metaphor for basically an outside country, a nation that was not pursuing God, and it, this idea of their dominion will not last, will not rest eternally on this place that God has given to his people. It doesn't mean they won't break through. It doesn't mean they won't come in. They won't cause trouble. Again, these aren't big mountains surrounding Jerusalem. People can still get in, and as you read your Bible, you see it happen over and over and over again. And depending on who wrote this psalm, he may be speaking of a specific surrounding nation. If it's David, maybe it's the Philistine or the Ammonites. Maybe it's later in history. Maybe it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But it talks about the land allotted to the righteous. It is speaking specifically about the city mentioned here in verses 1 and 2, Jerusalem, and more broadly about that promised land that God has given to his people, Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. But I want to key in on what it says. It says that the wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And you guys, we need to talk about what that actually means. The scepter of wickedness will not come to rest on the land of the righteous. We can easily insert there, again, if we're reading the Old Testament through a very black and white lens, we can easily insert there the Jews. Because after all, in our, in our reading of the Old Testament, we just think, well, they're the good guys. Clearly, God's talking about them. In the Old Testament, it is easy for us to come to this assumption that those who were approved by God, those who were declared right before God, those who were justified before God, were the ones who obeyed him, who followed the law. And then we can also believe that in the New Testament, well, that, that's out of the way. Paul has said, you know, it's not about the law. We become justified in the New Testament by believing in Jesus, believing in his death and his resurrection. And through faith in him, we're saved, and that's true. But that is not exclusive to the New Testament. The title of the righteous, you can go all the way back to Abraham. You go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. In Genesis 15, 6, it says this, And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In the New Testament, Paul, quoting this verse, says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
over and over throughout the entire scriptures, the mechanism of being just, being declared righteous before God was faith. All the way back to Abraham. It's just as true now. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do good things. That doesn't mean we don't uh, serve other people. We don't do noble, charitable, faithful acts. But the means of our justification, all the way back to Abraham, until now and in the future, was a belief. Not in our goodness, not in our works, but a belief in God. And so in verse 1, you see it says, Those who trust in the Lord, it is referring to these people. It is referring to the righteous. This promise is just as true for us today as it was for those pilgriming Israelites back then. One more thing we'll mention about verse 3. It says that the scepter will not rest lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Those who trust in the Lord are not exempt from the negative influences of those on the outside. If you become a Christian, that doesn't mean that you are all of a sudden immune from sin, immune from the influences of those who you surround yourself with, of what you take in on social media, TV, movies, etc. But it's interesting because it describes the righteous stretching out their hands to do wrong. What it doesn't say is that they will then become declared unrighteous. Right, their identity as the righteous is not seen to be linked or contingent upon their behavior. Because, again, our lasting confidence is built on the strength of his promise, not on the strength of our convictions and our obedience. It's the reason why uh, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the 16th century, in his commentary to the, on the Romans, he coined this phrase, simul justus et peccator, Christians are simultaneously just and a sinner. If you have put your faith in Christ, even though your behavior might look unchristian, you are not justified on the basis of your works, of your merit, of your good deeds. You are justified on your faith in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to our last point. The practice of the people who received the promise. If you are declared righteous, if you have a trust in who Jesus is and who God is, what do you do? What do you do do as one of those who have been declared righteous? And as you read this, it says, uh, verse four, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. This isn't a command, it's a plea. Potentially, even in the face of of adversity, maybe in the face of a specific nation that is being referred to as the scepter of wickedness that might be pressing in on Jerusalem at this time, that these pilgrims are ascending the mountains, do good, O Lord, to those who are good. It's a plea for God's blessing. Now, this is one of those verses that it's really easy for us to abuse. It's really easy for us to abuse and think, okay, well, I'm... I'm going to do good things. I'm going to, I'm going to be nice to Caleb. <laughs> I'm going to help Daryl out with his homework. And God's going to bless me. Because doesn't it say in Psalm 125.4 that God blesses those who do good? 
This is a verse that can be abused very bad, and it is abused by many churches. It's a verse that's referenced by, 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 by prosperity gospel preachers who say, hey, if you're basically a good person, God's going to bless you. If you donate this amount of money, you can expect this much of a blessing in return. If you do good deeds, you will be rewarded in this life with health and with wealth and a whole host of other immediate, physical, earthly blessings. I don't know about you guys, I read this and I come across phrases like, to those who are good, the phrase, who are upright in the heart, and if I'm honest with myself, I know right away, oh boy, we got a problem. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, you realize, I have a problem too. Here's the problem. Elsewhere, even in the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? said, Lord, if you were to take us to task for our sin, for our disbelief, our disobedience, who could actually stand up to that judgment? The answer to that reciprocal question is no one. A little bit later, David, Psalm 143, 2 says this, enter not into judgment with your servant. He's speaking of himself, a self who later was described as a man after God's own heart. He says, for no one living is righteous before you. This is Old Testament, folks. New Testament, Paul picks up the thread. Romans 3, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. And here Paul is quoting David in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now you can see the problem that verse 4 poses for all of us. The question then is, so, so who then? Who then is the recipient of the blessing of God's goodness in verse 4? It would seem from this, no one. And to make matters worse, it seems that if everyone does not qualify for the blessing of verse 4, that means by definition, by contrast, everyone qualifies for the curse of verse 5, which says this, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Now you might say, well, Tom, okay, maybe I'm not always good, and yeah, maybe I'm not upright in the heart, but turning aside to our crooked ways? I mean, I don't do that, right? I don't, I don't turn, that feels so devious, right? Turning aside to our crooked ways. Well, I'll be blunt, I'll just give you the clear answer, you do. And God's assessment of humankind, really general sweeping, comes through in Isaiah 53. This, this, this picture of God's servant foreseeing the coming of Jesus who would bear the iniquities of all, says this, verse 6, Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've all turned away. We've all turned aside. 
none of us can stand if the Lord were to take us to task for our iniquity. And the Bible is abundantly clear throughout of that fact. And so as you read verses 4 and 5, it seems to say, all mankind will not receive the goodness of the Lord, but will be, as it says in verse 5, led away with evildoers. Is that what it means? No. Because we already talked about answer number two, bullet point number two. Who are the people who received the promise? It is those who were declared righteous because of their faith in God, not because of how good they were, not because of how upright in heart they were, but because of who they believed, who they trusted in, who they were looking to for their identity, their confidence, their hope, their security. Now, last week, Steve was up here, and he introduced you to apophatic theology. Anyone remember that? Apophatic theology? Big word, fancy word. Well, you know, I want to introduce you today to a different theology. Honestly, to be fair, it's not a theology that gets talked about as much in like the highbrow theological scholarly circles. I call it Curious George theology. Okay? Now, Curious George theology, I have a seven-year-old, I have a five-year-old. I have read way too many Curious George stories. I've put in my time. Any amens out there? Amen, all right. Curious George theology. Uh, I'll say a little bit about Curious George here real quick. If you've read one Curious George story, you've read every Curious George story. The story arc is almost always the same. The only thing that changes is the setting. Sometimes George and the man with the yellow hat are at the zoo. Sometimes it's the chocolate factory, the city, the Christmas party. You name it. And the story arc goes something like this. George and the man with the yellow hat arrive in whatever context they're going to. Early on in the story, George's caretaker, the one who is supposed to look out for him, trust him, know what's best for him, tells him, hey, George, for your good, I don't want you to go off. Don't be curious. Don't do these things. And we know the name of the series is Curious George, so George never obeys. He goes off, and usually his disobedience of not doing what he's supposed to do leads to the main problem, and then the second half of the story is always George somehow fumbling into the solution so that he is rewarded at the end for being the hero. So, for example, Curious George goes to the zoo. George and the man with the yellow hat go to the zoo. They arrive, and immediately there's a problem. The exotic bird has escaped from its pen. The new exhibit... And so the man with the yellow hat says, tells George, George, stay here, stay safe, don't get into trouble, and he leaves. Why does he always leave? Where is he going? Suspicious, I know, not the point of the sermon. But for George's good, he tells George to stay. Does George stay? No, he doesn't stay. In fact, very early on, he leaves, and he goes and starts feeding the animals peanuts. He's feeding animals to the alligators, the giraffes, the monkeys, even though all the signs say, do not feed the animals. A zookeeper sees George and says, stop doing that. You're not supposed to do that. And he starts chasing George. George is now afraid. He doesn't want to be held accountable for his actions. And he goes and he hides. He hides in a number of different settings. And eventually he hides in a bush. And lo and behold, next to him in the bush is the exotic bird. 
George finds the bird. And the end of the story is he is exalted as the hero. He is richly rewarded. He is seen as the good guy, the hero of the story. And that's how all the stories end. George is given the keys to the city. He's first in line at the zoo exhibit. He's given a box of chocolates. And I hate it. Curious George theology says it doesn't matter that we consistently don't trust the one who knows what's best for us and instructs us for our good. And instead, we go our own way, trusting our impulses and momentary desires. Yet that lack of trust is always ultimately overshadowed and never acknowledged because the main tenet of Curious George theology says that regardless of your lack of trust and regardless of the motivations of your actions, if you do good things or if good things happen because of you, you will be richly rewarded. And you might say, come on, Tom, lay off. This is the kid's book. Man, I, I have strong convictions about this. My kids have probably read over 50 to 60 Curious George stories that are enforcing the same thing. And if this formation into a way of life is kind of this broad definition we're using for discipleship, I have to ask, what is it that's being internalized as my kids read those stories? So no, I'm not going to lay off Curious George. I don't like him. The problem is that this is the good news that many well-intended, kind, earnest people believe. Many self-professing disciples of Jesus have staked their eternal future on the idea that if they're basically good, kind or charitable, etc., they create a positive change in the world without regard to their trust in God their trust in the person of Jesus, that God will richly reward them both in this life and eternally in the life to come. And if you want to find support for that in your Bible, you can turn to Hallucinations, chapter 3. It's not in there. It is thoroughly unbiblical. And many, again, well-intended, kind, people who want to do good still believe this. And we should recall what it says in Hebrews 11, the beginning of this hall of faith chapter. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he, uh, excuse me, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Christians, our state of being declared good or upright in heart is not a response to our behavior or the results of our behavior, but in response to who we've put our trust in, our confidence, our hope in him. This is not curious George theology. So the question then is, so what do we do if if we have done this, if we have put our confidence in Jesus' death and resurrection? Our belief is firmly fixed in him. Our final good, our hope for eternal life is fixed in who he is and what he's done. What do we do? Well, Ephesians 2.8 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Again, we are saved through faith, 
But then look at verse 9, beginning. It is not a result of our works, but then look what it says in verse 10. It's underlined up there. It's not a result of works, but it leads to good works. It's not one or the other. We're saved by faith, but it always leads to good works. What you ultimately trust in will dictate what you do. Always. If your greatest trust is in financial security, it will inform your actions. You will pursue that thing which you're putting your confidence in. If your ultimate trust is the affection or validation or love that comes from a certain person, your actions will dictate and will be dependent upon that conviction. Even our good works are born out of that salvation which was accomplished through faith alone. And this gospel message is that our lasting confidence, our lasting confidence is that our secured, eternal, forever state of being declared good or upright in heart is not based on our works, deeds, or efforts to become righteous before God. But as pilgrims, as disciples of Jesus, our eternal security, right, as the mountains surround Jerusalem forever, is based on his righteousness, which was given to us exclusively through our faith in him. And so if you go back to Psalm 125, we realize those bottom circles right there, we already agree, I think, none of us qualifies on our own to be called that. None of us, we would say, if we were honest, which is hard for us, is to say, yeah, I am good. I'm really good. None of us, I think, would, if we were really honest, would say, I am upright in heart. The reality throughout the scriptures that our declaration, our, our being assigned the title of good or upright in heart, is only an extension of our being declared righteous before God. And the only reason that we can be declared righteous before God goes back to the very most important phrase I said in this entire psalm is verse 1, the very beginning. It's those who trust in the Lord. And that is our lasting confidence. Our lasting confidence has nothing to do with what we bring to the table or what we can do. No matter how much we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we redouble our efforts to be good enough, kind enough, faithful enough, charitable enough, compassionate enough, it is all about who we have placed our trust in. And so we circle back to the question one more time a question which I hope we, 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 we hear every week when we gather as a church. Who or what are you trusting in? Those pilgriming uh, Hebrews going to Jerusalem, singing these songs that having no idea that they would be passed down to us today, you know, they might have been hoping in the Lord. But maybe, maybe, they were hoping in the protection from a surrounding nation, as was often the case with the Hebrews. Maybe they were hoping in their material wealth. Maybe they were hoping in the fact that they're taking this long pilgrimage, that God would see it and would say, wow, thank you for your faithfulness. Thanks for your obedience. You are a good person. For us, what are we hoping in? Is it, is it the approval of our parents is it for someone to notice our religious activities? Oh, I hope that person sees me reading my Bible. I hope, I hope um, 
I, I, I hope uh, 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 um, I say the right things when I pray so that people think I'm really spiritual. Is your hope in a relationship? Is your hope fixed on a person who's not Jesus? Is it financial security? Is it material wealth? Is it comfort? My guess is, for us, it's a lot of those things. The question then is, well, how does your trust show itself? And if you're really not sure what you're trusting in, look at where your money goes. Look at what your time goes to. Look what occupies your mind when it just drifts off to something. The reality is we are all pilgrims, right? We're all on a journey. We all exist in story. Our life is a narrative. There's, there's themes and plots and subplots. There's surrounding characters. There's context. And the invitation of Psalm 125, from its outset and to its end, to get in on this promise, goes back to verse 1. It is those who trust in the Lord. The band's going to come up in just a second here, and we're going to pray. My encouragement for us is that today we would consider, not consider what we want people to think is true about us, but what might actually be true about us. The invitation is to examine what's in our hearts and to say, do I really trust completely in Jesus' death? And does that inform my actions, my practices, as a person who has received the promise? Or do I think Jesus was okay, but I, I still feel like I need to do things to make up the gap that his death didn't actually cover? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, thanks for your faithfulness. We recognize that the invitation to trust you, to put our confidence, our hope, our identity in who you are is only possible because of your faithfulness towards us. We recognize that there was nothing about our experience or our deeds or our works that caused you to leap up and say that we were worthy of your favor, worthy of your eternal protection, of your eternal security, that even when we were dead in our sins, you made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that we're saved. So Lord, as, as we sing, as we fix our eyes on you. God, I, I pray that we would worship you with hearts, again, that are, are free from presumption or assumption, but that we'd see you before us and we would respond appropriately. Amen. We're going to enter into 